Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Happy Friday, everyone. I'm Clarissa Kennedy, and on today's episode, Vera and I chat with Mark Schatzker about his new book, The End of Craving, Recovering the Lost Wisdom of Eating Well. I've been a massive fan of his work since reading The Dorito Effect, The Surprising New Truth About Food and Flavor. So it was an honor to have this conversation with him today. Although at first he seemed a little resistant to come on board with the idea of food addiction, after Vera explained our stance and how the population we work with does react to sugar and ultra-processed foods like individuals with substance use issues, it seems we are on a similar page, especially when it comes to the solution. Today, we discuss the complex interplay between appetite, flavor, taste, and the difference between wanting and liking, how our sense of smell may be just as involved as our sense of taste. Mark provides a deeper understanding of how food manufacturers have exploited our neurobiology. It's not just about the sugar, but also the flavor industry, which is worth billions. Today, we discuss how the body, rather than having a natural propensity to gain weight, actually wants to stay at a healthy set point, how obese people crave more food but enjoy it less, and why it is that humans take pleasure in eating. We talk about how food additives, fat enhancers, artificial sweeteners, and strangely enough, even certain vitamins that are added to food may be shifting the body's set point increasing people's cravings for food and triggering weight gain. Mark shares how if your body doesn't trust that the smell, flavor, and texture of your food aligns with the nutrients and energies it provides, energy being calories, which is commonly found in diet foods like fat-free, sugar-free processed foods, your appetite becomes risk-averse and then actually seeks out more food just in case. This really helps explain why drinking diet sodas does not result in weight loss. Sometimes it drives hunger and makes us crave more. In this interview, we touch on the impact of dopamine, reward prediction error, cue exposure therapy with foods, and the role endorphins play in the weight gain, specifically how it drives us to use food to soothe. If anything, this episode solidifies that those of us in food addiction recovery are on the right track to reduce cravings and find peace and pleasure in eating. That this can only really be found when we seek out food that naturally tastes great. Real food, because it contains the nutrients your body requires. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the show. All right. Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. My name is Dr. Vera Tarman, and I am your co-host today, along with Clarissa Kennedy. Today, we are speaking with Mark Schatzker, the author of the best-selling book, The Dorito Effect. Mark Schatzker is an award-winning writer based in Toronto. He's a CBC journalist and author of The Dorito Effect, The Surprising New Truth About Food and Flavor, Steak, One Man's Search for the World's Tastiest Piece of Beef, 
and end of craving, recovering the last wisdom of eating well. We are especially interested in his take about how foods can be addictive. And actually, for those of you who are well known to food junkies, it's not just about the sugar. So welcome, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, we're thrilled. I've been wanting to get you on our podcast for some time, so I'm really glad that you uh, found the time to do this. So we always like to start with a personal angle. So what got you interested in the whole concept of enticing foods and the sort of modern problems of obesity and addiction? Um, Really because I'm such a food lover. I love to eat and I enjoy food so much. and I've enjoyed it my whole life. And I'm one of the very fortunate people that I have a very good relationship with food. um, I'm about six feet tall and I weigh 172 pounds. And I essentially eat what I want when I want. I really don't monitor much about in terms of watch my weight or watch how much I eat. And I think really this is the way it's supposed to be. And I think something's gone drastically wrong with our food system. And, you know, food was meant to nourish us. And it's become a kind of a slow acting poison. And this is such an enormous problem. And it's not only unhealthy, it causes so much suffering and it's expensive. So I think it's an urgent problem that we need to think of differently because so many of the approaches that we're taking, not only are they not working, they might even be making things worse. Well, you know what? Okay. So you just introduced yourself as somebody who basically, it sounds like you have a relationship with food that you're actually pretty okay with, that you're not one of the people who struggle. So interesting, what got you interested in the struggle of food addiction, or not so much food addiction, but the struggle around food, since you're not one of us, as it were. Well, one of the reasons is that so often the pleasure of food is maligned and it's considered dangerous and that uh, it must be controlled. And I think this is kind of a puritanical philosophy that is sort of inherent to North America. And I think it's wrong, often wrong. And I think it's dangerous because there's food cultures we can see in different parts of the world. I talk about this a lot in the end of craving. Northern Italy is a great example where where the food is excellent. I mean, the quality is, is unbelievable. People from all over the world travel there just to eat as the locals are eating and they have an astonishingly low rate of obesity. So I think when it comes to questions like pleasure and addiction and what scientists call hedonics, it's extremely complex. And we have a, we have a habit as a culture to kind of lump the two together, that something that's pleasurable is by its nature bad. And I don't think that makes any sense on the surface because I can't see why evolution would have crafted an organism that sort of comes out of the womb designed to kill itself. Now, is there something going wrong? Absolutely. Is there a hedonic component to that in terms of pleasure and addiction? Yes. But I think the story we're being sold is often oversimplified. And I think there's very positive news to look to that that can actually point the way out and that we don't kind of have to deny ourselves the, ple- the some of the basic pleasures of living in order to, to live well. Okay, good. Well, that's great. Because so the complexities is exactly what we want to dig into. So I just want to say for our listeners, spoiler alert, the hedonic struggle is not necessarily about the sugar or the salt or the fat, but actually flavor. And this is a unique perspective. And that's why we're so happy to have you on board here so that we can actually talk about this concept. Before I get you to talk about that, I want to read a quote that came out of uh, one of your podcasts that I just thought was worthy. So nothing tastes like what it is anymore. Everything tastes like what we want it to taste. Everything has become blander and simultaneously seasoned. Everything is becoming like a Dorito. The birth of the Dorito was a watershed moment. Flavor wasn't up to Mother Nature anymore. Now it was in the hands of the folks in marketing. So Mark, please, can you elaborate on that concept using this? The Dorito is really just a very good illustration of your concept. So go for it. Yes, and I elaborate by telling a story. And it's the story of a guy named Arch West. And he was an ad man on Madison Avenue. If anyone's ever seen seen the show Mad Men, he he could have walked right off that set. He sold ads. 
In the early 1960s, he was offered a job to be the vice president of sales and marketing for the Frito company that made corn chips. So he moved to Dallas, Texas to take up that job. Very soon after he arrived, they merged with the Lay's Chip Company to become Frito-Lay, the company we all know. And shortly after that merger happened, he took his family on a trip to Southern California. And he was driving south to San Diego when he passes, his daughter described it to me, a little Mexican shack. And he was the kind of guy who just had to pull over, try the stuff. And he tasted there a snack that he thought would change the way America eats snacks. He tasted a tortilla chip and he thought, this is going to be the next big thing for Frito-Lay. So he came back to the office in Dallas and he pitched this idea and he got shut down. They said, we don't see it. You know, we already make Fritos, which are kind of like a tortilla chip. They're just shaped differently, but it's kind of like cornmeal that's fried. But he was so confident in this concept that he actually funneled discretionary funds into an offsite facility to develop this concept. And he pitched it again. And this time he had samples. And he said, gentlemen, I give you Doritos, which meant little pieces of gold in a kind of highly bastardized Spanish. And he got the go ahead. And um, I think it was 1962. Frito-Lay marketed Doritos. And I know what you're thinking. This is the moment it all changed. And it didn't because the first Doritos bombed. They didn't sell well. And they were just what we think of as tortilla chips, just salted triangles, you know, tortilla chips that you dip in salsa, that kind of a thing. And then the knock on this chip when they did the consumer research was it sounds Mexican, but it doesn't taste Mexican. So here's this guy, Arch West. He went against what everybody said and developed this chip. It's bombing. What do you do? And he said, let's make them taste like taco. And this actually got laughed. And someone said, our Yankee friend from the North doesn't understand the difference between a thing and a flavor. And it was an excellent critique at the time because up until roughly that point in time, different things had their own flavors. So strawberries tasted like strawberries, apples tasted like apples, chicken tasted like chicken. And for a very long time, scientists did not know why. What actually made thing food flavorful was a bit of a mystery because the molecules, the compounds in food that generate flavor are there in just a tiny, tiny amount. And it was the a device called the gas chromatograph that came on the market in the mid-1950s that let scientists open the door into food and see where flavor came from. And no sooner did we start identifying these very complex chemicals than we started making them in flavor factories. And there are flavor factories dotting every continent save Antarctica. So Arch West knew what his colleagues didn't, that we now had the technology to make something like a tortilla chip taste like taco. Now, did it taste exactly like taco? No, nobody thought they were eating taco, but it imbued it with the kind of the depth, the zest and the tang of a food that it wasn't. And Frito-Lay marketed taco flavored Doritos. And that is what changed everything. And think about this for a moment, because a snack people didn't want to eat turned into a snack people couldn't stop eating. Now, we always talk about nutrition. We are obsessed with talking about fat and carbs and salt and calories. Well, from a macronutritional and micronutritional point of view, it didn't change at all. The fat level was the same, salt level was the same, carbohydrate, calories, all the same. What changed? It was this dusting of flavor chemicals. And the reason I think this is so important is because we have to take off the lab coat and stop pretending that we're all scientists. Some of us have a vague idea what calories and protein are. Very few of us actually understand how metabolism works and what our body, how our brain thinks about these things. What our brain likes and and the way the brain thinks about food is through the lens of flavor. When we sit down to a meal, even if you're on a diet, we always want to maximize the pleasure. And we think of that as flavor. Does it taste good? Does it taste bad? And this is what changed was the ability to 
change the flavor of food. And, and Doritos, I talk about as kind of being, they tell us the story of what happened to all food. Because not only are we adding flavor tech, uh, flavorings to all the wrong foods, the wholesome foods are losing flavor because our agricultural system is geared towards producing as much as possible. So on a very simple level, humans eat for flavor, wholesome foods are getting less flavor food, junk food is getting more flavor food. This is a problem. Okay, good. So you're talking about flavor. So in this book, particularly, you focus a lot on how we have, um, can you tell us a little bit more about our flavor mechanisms in the nose, in the mouth, the sweet, salt, sour, and just how that works and how the food industry is capitalizing on that. And listeners, please realize, I just want to reiterate what you said, because it's so important. We focus so much on the sugar and the combo of of, of the carbs and salt and sugar. And what you're saying is it's much more complicated than that. It's the flavor. So tell us about the flavor mechanism. Yeah, so scientists talk about flavor as being a kind of integration of two senses. What you taste with your tongue, and that's the basic tastes, and then what you smell with your nose. And people are thinking, what are you talking about what I smell with my nose? I don't smell while I eat. Well, the truth is you do smell while you eat. It's called retronasal olfaction. So when you sniff, like you're sniffing a flower, that's called orthonasal olfaction. The odor molecules are going through your nose. Retronasal olfaction happens when the odor molecules of what you eat goes up in that kind of a hole in the back of your throat and it stimulates odor receptors. So that's why when you have a cold, food loses so much of its flavor because you're you're not sensing the odor, these aromatic molecules, compounds that give food its character. So flavor is really a combination of what your tongue senses and what your nose senses. And it's very complex. If you think of your DNA as your instruction manual, the thickest chapter is on your flavor sensing equipment, the nose and mouth. It takes up more lines of code than anything else. So obviously it's really important. What's it doing there? And this is where things get so interesting because we are so quick to malign flavor. We say, you know, if it tastes good, spit it out. Well, what the heck's it there for? Like, why is it taking up so much DNA? Why do we have this nose in the middle of our face that we sniff food with? Why do we sense food in this way? And this is where things become so interesting. And it's when we look to animal science that we find out why food has flavor. And I interviewed in the book a a scientist by the name of Fred Provenza, who did fascinating work with sheep and goats. Hmm. And what he found, here's the central issue that our brain, this, this, you know, thing inside of our head that's trying to survive. The problem it has with nutrients like vitamins is that they're very stable. They're really hard to sense. So how's a brain to figure out what's in food? What do I eat? What don't I eat? And how it does that is by sensing the aromatic compounds in food, and it associates them with nutrients. So Fred Provenza would do studies, for example, he would make sheep deficient in phosphorus. This is a mineral that's necessary for life. If you don't get your phosphorus, you're going to die. And he made them deficient in phosphorus. They're getting sick. They're like pawing at the earth. They, they want to eat all sorts of things because they know something's wrong. And he would give them a feed that was flavored like coconut. And then he would put a, a kind of a, this injection of phosphorus in their tummy. So it's important. They didn't taste the phosphorus. They only tasted coconut. He would also give them maple flavored feed and he would associate that with water. And what he found is that over time, the sheep learned that coconut equals phosphorus. So if he reinduced the deficiency, they would start eating coconut flavored feed. Their brain did the math. They said coconut is where the phosphorus is. Now you might be thinking, well, hold on a sec. What if sheep just like coconut? I mean, coconut's delicious. Well, he reversed it in it with a different group. And for this group, the maple equaled the phosphorus. 
And this group would start to eat maple-flavored food when they needed phosphorus. So this is why we have this incredible sensing, flavor-sensing apparatus, because flavor is nature's language of nutrition. Nature is so much about a chemical-sensing game, chemical war sometimes. I talk about in the book how plants will produce chemicals that attract wasps that kill the caterpillars that are eating them. Chemicals really are nature's way of communicating and that's what flavor is. So this thing that we either think is sort of frivolous and idiotic, or we're just so happy to, you know, let's dump flavor in the food. It performs a very important role. And it has, I would say, nutritional properties. There's another thing I talk about in the book is a scientist named Harry Klee, who's been working to make tomatoes more flavorful. And what he discovered is that there's about 26 of these um, flavor compounds in tomatoes that drive liking, that if they're there, you like that tomato. Well, what he found is that these compounds are all synthesized from essential nutrients in the tomato. So the flavor of a good tomato, it's like a sign just blinking at your brain going, there's good stuff in here, you should eat this. Now think of how beautifully this works when food is real. You're eating a delicious tomato. Not only do you get the pleasure of that wonderful tomato, your body's getting good stuff. Now let's think about what happens when you turn that tomato into a flavoring, you analyze the flavor compounds, you produce a fake tomato flavor, and you put that on a potato chip and you call it a ketchup flavored potato chip. Well, now your brain is getting a signal that there's good stuff to eat here. And what's it getting? Is it getting a tomato with the fiber, the vitamins, the minerals, the phytocompounds, the antioxidants? No, it's getting a potato chip. And this, I think, is so interesting because we have taken the pleasure of a healthy food and imposed it onto a food we shouldn't be eating. And I think this is so destructive. And I think it's starting to make us, this helps us understand why we're behaving in such self-destructive ways, because we're really kind of wiring our brain in an improper way to, to get us to eat stuff we shouldn't eat. Uh-huh. Yeah, because we're actually thinking that we're eating the proper foods. And so that our drive to overeat is that continual desire to get that food that we're actually not eating, but we think we are. Well, yes. Yeah, so that was the question I asked in the in the book that followed, which just came out recently called The End of Craving. Okay. What, what I think I, I do not doubt for a second, what I learned in the Dorito effect is that adding flavor compounds to food makes us eat food we wouldn't normally eat. So another great example are soft drinks. If you think of something like Coca-Cola, Dr. Pepper, 7-Up, Pepsi. We always talk about these things as though they're sugary drinks. They are sugary drinks. But we always talk about sugar as though it's the guilty party. And on some level, that's obviously true. The sugars are where the calories are. The sugars are, you know, that involves insulin, all sorts of things. But let's ask ourselves a question. If it was just soda water with sugar, would people drink it? Well, I've done that test at home. I've given it to my kids. I've tried it myself. It's really not very interesting to drink. When you add the flavor compounds, you are imbuing it with a kind of this sheen of biological complexity that it doesn't have. So you take something that would normally be kind of like a, eh, don't really want it. And all of a sudden you're moved to drink it. So I think that's really interesting. But then there's this other question that I asked, which is like, what happens to your brain when you start to do this over and over again? Is it just as simple as you're, you're motivating yourself to eat food you wouldn't normally eat? Or does something worse happen? Because one of the interesting things I found, I talked to a lot of neuroscientists, and one of the interesting things, we talk a lot about addiction with food, and we often conflate that with pleasure. Well, some of the most interesting neuroscience about people with obesity shows that we're getting that that part wrong. The stigma about obesity is that people lose themselves in the pleasures of food and they just don't know when to say no. 
And this is wrong. What the neuroscience tells us is that if anything, the pleasure response is blunted. What, where we see the difference is in the desire for food. So if you take the example of a milkshake and you take the brain of someone who's trim versus the brain of someone with obesity, the drinking that milkshake, most people think the person with obesity is going to get more pleasure. What we see is, in fact, they seem to get less pleasure. Where we see the difference is when they see the milkshake. The trim brain says, that looks like a nice drink. I might like to have a sip of that. Whereas the person with obesity says, I really, really, really want to have a sip of that drink. So that was a really interesting finding for me. And I thought, what could be causing that? Because the other important things, and this is kind of bound up in what I would call our misconception of the mission of the brain. A lot of us think that, that we're born on a lifelong mission to eat ourselves into an early grave, that we evolved in an environment in which calories were scarce. So we sort of come out of the womb thinking calories, calories, calories. I think this is totally wrong. The brain really is in control of body weight. So that's one important thing. One of the reasons people struggle so much with diets is because your brain is controlling your body weight. And it's quite insidious how it works. And I know I'm kind of rambling here, but it's all going to come together. (laughs) At least I hope it will. One of the main problems with diets is that they, in fact, they do work at the beginning. Almost all diets work from the six to eight month mark. That's the point at which they fail. And most people blame themselves. They say the diet was working. I screwed up. I got weak. I gave in. What happens is the brain intervenes and the brain says, I know you're losing weight and I want you to gain that weight back. So I know you're thinking, okay, that's evidence. Our brain wants us to get fat. But that, in fact, isn't true because scientists since the 1950s have been doing overfeeding studies where they take subjects and they give them too much food to eat. And what they find is the result is very similar to a starvation study. They find the subjects find eating too much food is awful. They had to do the first of these experiments in a prison because ordinary free living people just were not willing to put up with the agony of eating too much food. And then when these studies come to an end, the subjects lose the weight that they gain just like dieters gain back the weight that they gained. So what we see is that the brain actually has an idea kind of in its head of how much it wants us to weigh. And for a long time, this worked quite well. It's, It's really only in the last several decades that the obesity epidemic has become what it is. Before that, Generally speaking, you know, overweight what was a thing, but generally speaking, people had a uh, people ate more in line with their needs. Can I so, just stop you there? Let me just stop you there for a minute. So, so just for our listeners, I just want to make the distinction. So, your first book, The Dorito Effect, talks a lot about the flavor piece, and what you're talking about now is all in the second book or the third or fourth book, the most recent one, which is The End of Craving. Yes. So up to now, you're talking about essentially our set point, that we all seem to have this set point. And you're now about to launch in how the food industry has altered that, right? Yes. Yes. So so the end of craving really became a, a large part of it became a quest to understand what would make an intelligent brain kind of go off the rails. And why is it that we see this spike in craving that people want to eat too much food? Yeah. Okay. And and so this is the other important thing is that the other thing we have to understand about the brain is that it's a measurer. The brain loves to measure and it measures calories. It measures what we eat. We think of the flavor of food as sort of being pleasant, frivolous, maybe dangerous, To our brain, it is information. So the brain is collecting information about the food you eat in your mouth, in your nose, but that's not the only place. There's also nutrient sensors all through the digestive tract. Your brain is constantly measuring. So if our brain was kind of dumb about flavor, didn't really measure, didn't know what was going on, then I would say, yes, we need to change, you know, we need to maybe change the makeup of food. We need to resist it. 
But if it turns out the brain is very intelligent about food, that it's measuring what we eat in the mouth, but also, you know, in the gut, this changes things because this means we have to be careful what we tell the brain because we could perhaps confuse it. And I want to talk about a recent study, which I think is so important, which shows the importance of measurement and how things can go wrong. This was a study that was done at Yale University by a scientist named Dana Small. And she was asking this question that we often all ask is, is it possible to create a beverage that is just as rewarding to drink, but has fewer calories? Because wouldn't that be great if you could drink something that's just delicious and wonderful, but fewer calories? So how do you ask a question like this? Because this is what makes science challenging. And she came up with a really ingenious method. She created five separate drinks. They all had a distinctive flavor and color. She then used the artificial sweetener called sucralose so that they each tasted as though they had about 75 calories worth of sugar. She then used a tasteless starch called maltodextrin to give each drink a different calorie payload. One had zero, one had 37, one had 75, one had 112, one had 150. So here we have five drinks, all different flavor. They each are equally sweet. They all have different calories. She gave them to her patients. Their brains drank them. There was this measuring going on. And then she invited them back to the lab and she scanned their brain as they tasted each of these drinks to see what the brain response was. And it's really interesting. Before I tell the result, just think in your head, well, what would the difference be? Would the brain say, I like all these drinks the same because they're all equally sweet and sweetness is what the brain cares about? Or would it be that 150 calorie drink that wins because the brain really cares about calories? Well, the result didn't make any sense. It was the 75 calorie drink that got the biggest brain response. The other drinks didn't seem to get much of a response at all. And this was really odd. So odd that she did it again. It happened again. So then Dana Small takes experimental subjects and she puts them in something called an indirect calorimeter. This is a device that measures what's called the thermic effect of food. When we consume calories, our body starts to process them. And this generates heat. We can measure that heat. And if you open up a textbook, it'll tell you the more calories you eat, the bigger this thermic effect will be. So one day, a young woman in her 20s comes to the lab. She drinks the 75-calorie drink, and there's this nice little plume of heat, exactly what you'd expect. A few days later, she comes in and drinks the 150-calorie drink, and there should be a bigger plume of heat, more calories, more thermic effect. There's no effect. It's like she drank a cupful of air, and this is making absolutely no sense at all. And then Dana Small is struck by an idea, a number. And the number is 75 because the drink that generated the brain response and was metabolized properly was the drink that tasted like it had 75 calories, but it also had 75 calories. The taste and the caloric payload were matched. The drinks that didn't get metabolized properly and didn't generate a brain response, things were mismatched. So what this tells us is that information matters. Sweetness isn't this like frivolous sensation from the stone age that is leading us astray. Sweetness is giving the brain information about food. It also tells us that accuracy matters. When that information is wrong, things go wrong. And this is important because this tells us why we have this elaborate sensory system. Now, I know what you might be thinking, well, artificial sweeteners, are you you telling me that's the cause of all the problems? And absolutely not. This is where we start to get smoke and there's a bigger fire going on because when we look at what we do to food, sweetness is just one thing we've changed. We have artificial sweeteners. We also have sugar alcohols. 
We also have allosteric modifiers. There's all sorts of ways that we're changing the sweetness of food. This is recent, right? Up until about 50 years ago, a handful of decades ago, sweetness told a true story. If our ancestors in the jungle were fighting over a piece of fruit, you know, maybe you have to fight to get it. There might be a big cat that wants to eat you, but the fruit told the truth. The sweeter it was, the more calories it has. Now, sweetness can mean anything. It can mean 200 calories on a Monday. On a Tuesday, that same sweet signal can mean zero calories, could mean 300 calories. But that's just sweetness. We also have fat replacers. Fat replacers, this is very interesting. Fat replacers are in all sorts of food. But unlike the artificial sweetener industry, the fat replacer industry is keeping its head down. Nobody Uh, knows what foods contain fat replacers because they're very creative about how they show up in the ingredient panel. But they kind of got off the ground in the 1980s when we had things like light salad dressings and light yogurt. And essentially, these are additives that create the rich sensation of fat in the mouth, but you wind up with just a a smidgen of calories in the gut. This is a good idea if your brain's this kind of Stone Age ogre that wants to stuff its face. Maybe not a good idea if your brain loves to measure. We also have fake flavors. I wrote about the Dorito effect, but we put flavorings. It's not just Doritos. It's not just Coke and Pepsi and 7-Up. We put flavors in pork. We put flavors in chicken because they've gotten so bland. We're putting flavor in everything. So we're, it's as though we are on some kind of mission to fool our brain about what's actually in the food we eat. So now let's ask another question. What happens to a brain that gets fooled? What happens when this brain that loves to measure is getting information that doesn't add up? And there's a great body of literature on this. The the technical phrase is reward prediction error. And that just means the brain, the predicted reward didn't arrive. Another term for it is uncertainty. How does a brain react to uncertainty? It reacts in a really predictable way. And it's not just humans. We see this across the animal kingdom. Elevated motivation. It basically makes us want stuff more. Why is that? Well, for a really good reason. Our ancestors there in the jungle, if something they needed became uncertain, that whispers this threat, you might not get what you need. And if that keeps happening, you're going to die. So our ancestors that reacted with except, you know, more enthusiasm, more desire, when something became uncertain, they're the ones that survived. So this, I think, is what evolution has given us, is how we react in the face of uncertainty. This is why we like to gamble. This is why when uh, we, we are addicted to our phones, because they give us, you know, sometimes we're electrified by the information, sometimes we're bored by it. It's how we react to uncertainty that elevates our motivation. This is why we see that people with obesity, it's they crave food because we have been mucking around with the nutritional signals the brain picks up from food. And this is how the brain is responding. Yeah, so it's responding to this confusion. So I just want to, again, for to, to put it into the context of what we're used to thinking about, because you really are giving a unique perspective here. So we think about, you know, there's the dopamine spike or that want spike, which I'm hoping that you're going to elaborate on as just the sugar itself, and that the filling, like the volume, the uh, eating, the, the sort of stretch receptors in the gut are giving this uh, satiation response. But you're saying it's far more complicated, that those things may well be true, but flavor and this, I think you call it the nutritional uh, mismatch at some other point is what's on top of that complicating things even further. Am I right? Yes, absolutely. So things that, yes. So dopamine, and we can get in this further, but dopamine is this, is this brain, this neurotransmitter. It's the motivation one. It's about wanting. So a lot of people for a long time thought dopamine was pleasure. That's not true. Dopamine is about wanting. And here's the thing in a state of nature, that's important. It's important to want things. It's important to be attracted to food. What we don't want is to have an excessive level of motivation towards food. 
But if you wipe out an animal's dopamine, that part of his brain, it's going to die. It's not going to be motivated to eat. So it's important to have that. It's how we change that. So something like sugar, I mean, the, the dose makes the poison. <laughs> Is a small amount of sugar poisonous? No, I don't think so. Are people eating excessive amounts? Absolutely. The question is why? The question is why do some people find that they want to consume a, a tremendous volume of sugar and other caloric foods and other people like myself are satisfied by a much smaller amount and, and aren't seized by these cravings. And I think that's what we have to unlock. So I think where addiction comes into it, I think we need to be very careful because there's more than one kind of addiction. And I think people often want to uh, compare the situation we have with disordered eating with drugs. And I think we can make some comparisons. What we see, for example, is there's a similar situation with drug addiction that pleasure that flew out the window ages ago. An alcoholic or a heroin addict, it's no longer about pleasure. They are seized by cravings and they don't receive pleasure from it anymore. They're just trying to extinguish this, this bonfire of desire. So we see similar things with obesity, certainly with binge eating disorder. So I think those things are similar. I think what's different is that drugs go behind the blood brain barrier and they start to muck around with neurotransmitters and what's, and food is sensed. So I think food is more of a behavioral addiction. I think it's more similar to gambling where it's a behavior that's gone off the rails. It's not, I don't think you can compare sugar to heroin because I think they're very different in how they act. But I do think if we're going to put it in that spectrum of addiction, of a reward system that's, that's gone awry, to me, it's more similar to things like, like a gambling addiction, a behavioral addiction. I guess you could say, it's a, is it a distinction that matters? I, I think so, just as far as un, understanding it. And because that's going to perhaps affect how we try to improve it and resolve it. Well, if I can just make a defense on the on the, the front that sugar can play a role, like you mentioned earlier, and you said it a couple of times uh, today, that the idea that there's a, a, a learned behavioral additional dynamic on top of the flavor mismatch. And when a person is hypersensitive to the sweet taste, we certainly agree that there's a behavioral piece, absolutely. But even just the sugar on a repeated level adds that additional dynamic of learned behavior. So it's the sugar itself that stimulates that. So the sugar started it, but then, yes, it does become a behavioral piece after that. And I agree with that. The, I guess, uh, but like you said, it's learned. And I think something, a difference yes. with something like cocaine or heroin is it's going to hijack your reward system the very first time you try it in, in a very strong way. Well, it can for, for food addicts too, it's because of maybe an inheritable, you know, dopamine impairment already from the get-go. So there could be something happening there. Like with food addiction, we don't say, or sugar addiction, we don't say everybody in the population who eats junk food are sugar addicts. It's it's a 10 or 15 or 20% of the population. And we also believe that, that that start that way. And we also believe that we can create that disorder so that the first time you use heroin, only 10% of the population will become addicted. But if you use it on a regular basis, I mean, those Vietnam vets that came back eventually got off of it, but they were addicts while they were over there. So because of the access. So, you know, as long as we're in an accessible world with this sugar all over the place, we're creating more and more addicts. Anyway, that's our argument. So I don't disagree with you, but then you run into problems. It seems to me, if you look at an environment like Northern Italy, where they have sweets, they have wonderful sweets. Yeah, they I know. could, in theory, become addicted. I would say their sweets actually taste better than ours. I mean, the, the gelato there puts our ice cream to shame. Why are their portions so much smaller? Why are they seemingly satisfied by smaller amounts of what I would consider to be better food? This, to me, is where yeah. it, it becomes so much more complicated, and, and there yeah. aren't simple answers. And I think I should also say that you're taking what I would call a more nuanced approach to food addiction. One of the things I'm reacting against is people saying, 
we're all addicted to food. You know, I, I drink a Coke because I'm addicted to it because it tastes good. And, and that's just, it's very simple language. And it's, I think it's actually profoundly cruel to people who really do suffer with this on a much deeper level. Um, <laughs> just because I like the way something tastes, that doesn't give me any kind of insight in the pain and struggle that some people experience with these things. So I think when I'm criticizing some of the notions about food being addictive, it's, it's some of the, the silly ways people talk about it in, in kind of the popular press, which I think can be damaging and misleading. Yeah, totally. I think we're on the same page with that one. Yeah, for sure. Chrissy, do you want to say something about that or shall I just continue on here? No, I just wanted you to maybe touch a little bit more on the wanting versus liking. I liked when you were saying a little bit about, I was listening to an interview where you were talking about that, uh, what is it called? Reward? Reward prediction error. Yes. And you were saying how, you know, you're, we're drinking all these drinks with sweetener or whatever. And then we find out like the brain understands we are not getting these calories. So then it's driving perhaps a need or desire for more food so it can get those calories. Is that kind of what you were stating from, is that how reward prediction error works? Yeah. So, so to, to broaden it out to how like the, the problems working in general is that there's many different kinds of signals for calories the brain can get. Sweetness is one of them. Fattiness is one of them. I think flavors are also can be an energetic signal. And that signal is just chaotic. It used to be really certain, like it, it might be hard to get, but when you got it, you got the real thing. And we have just made that a signal that was certain become very uncertain. I'll give you an example I often use. If you're calling an elevator, you know the button you press, the elevator call button? How often yeah. did you press that once or oh, did you yeah. press it a whole bunch of times? Yeah, a few times. <laughs> a whole bunch of times because we don't, you're sitting there going like, is this thing even working? Where's the elevator? Someone's like holding the door. So you just jab it. But when you get on the elevator, let's say you want to go to the 18th floor. How many times do you press that button? Once. You press it once because it lights up and you know. So okay. this gives us an insight. I'll give you another example. If I told you, you got a flight that leaves at 4.30, your watch says it's 2.30 right now. It's either an hour fast or an hour slow. What would you do? I would go with it being an hour slow, so I would get there earlier. Yeah, you're like, I got to get to the airport. So yeah. this shows how uncertainty elevates motivation because you're like, I might miss my flight. That would be a disaster. So this just there's just this inherent response. And I think that's important because... Another thing we don't talk enough about, I, I don't I, think, is the... Can I just, can I just sure. jump in? Because this is a, uh, just, just to relate this to our language, a lot of people will admit that they're eating not because they're enjoying the food at the moment, but because they're hoping that they can prolong or that they're going to get what they want in the next five minutes. So, And they don't want to not because they, they might miss out on that. So it, it's part of that uncertainty principle. It's not the enjoyment. It's the fact that they might not get what they want that they're still hoping for. Yeah. So, I, and I heard, I visited an eating disorder clinic in Germany and I spoke to a, a patient who'd gone through some really interesting therapy, which I'd love to tell you about. And she said, she realized that some of the foods that she loved were kind of always whispering lies that she used to really love cake. Yeah. Cake never really followed through. There was always this great idea of cake, but when she ate the cake, she never actually got what she thought she was going to get. And she had to have someone essentially bring her to the point of realizing this. And it opened the door to her liking all sorts of other foods. One food that really helped her was dark chocolate, which she didn't like at first. And then she grew to love it to the point where she's, she tasted milk chocolate again. She said, it's too sweet. And she said, the thing with dark chocolate is you can't eat it too quickly, that it just sort of, you know, it has a moderate pace to it. 
So I'll tell you, I'll tell you about this therapy. It's a fascinating woman. Her name is Anya Hilbert, and she does what she calls hedonic therapy. And hedonic is the scientific word for pleasure. So it's pleasure therapy. And she, what's so interesting is she uses this language of wanting and liking, which a lot of neuroscientists use, but she's not a neuroscientist. She's a different kind of scientist. And it shows us that there really is something here. So the first thing she did was to really acquaint me with this wanting drive that we have. This is it's called Q exposure therapy. It was originally developed for phobias, but it can be used with food. Yeah. So she gave me these two potato chips. Uh, it was a cheese and actually she gave me the bag. And she's like, I want you to look at the bag. I want you to look at the picture. And then I opened it and there's, it makes this nice popping sound. And there's this, you know, aroma that fills your nostrils. And she says, you can take two chips out of the bag, but she says, you can't eat them. She said, I can sniff them. I can look at them. She says, you can rub them together. You can even nibble them. And funnily enough, it was the rubbing them together that really set me off. I really wanted to eat these chips like badly. Like, like it was almost like a pain, but she wouldn't let me. And then she's like, I want you to throw them in the garbage. I'm like, what? Like, what? And then I did, and then I took out two new chips and they were like, it was like a new car. They had this, like, they were like fresh and new and perfect. And she wouldn't let me eat those. And this craving just built and built and built to the, to the point of pain. And it really gave me this insight. And even someone like myself, like I said, I, I don't have some of these issues. I can still fall victim to some of the ways foods are designed to really draw us into this trap. Yeah. And I think I've been thinking about this since. And there's foods that I think of as really our only wanting foods. If I think of potato chips, when we eat potato chips, we get into that repetitive, like your hand goes back in the bag. Would anyone ever say potato chips are their favorite food? Like, I I love food. I would never say, boy, there was that bag of potato chips I ate in Italy in 2004. It was a September afternoon. The sun was setting. I'll never forget. No, you never say that for potato chips. You say it for fruit, maybe for a great glass of wine or for a wonderful steak. But what is it about potato chips? We just put our hand in the bag and you're just, the one chip leads to the expectation of the next one. And it's just this cycle, but they never deliver what I think of as genuine pleasure. However, the principle of really enjoying food is part of the recovery plan that we really talk about. So I would like you to talk about your solution because I suspect it's going to be the same as us. We want to have real food that has the nutritional match and absolutely enjoy it. Yeah, one of the main things is to eat real food. This is not exactly a new finding. Many people who talk about what's wrong with food come to that solution. What I would say is different is we have to eat like Italians, which is that every meal should be an opportunity to enjoy the food that you're eating. That doesn't mean to stuff your face. It means this immersive kind of mindful experience of really thinking about and enjoying what you're eating and enjoying it with other people. Don't eat in the car. Don't eat in front of the TV. Don't eat mindlessly. Don't eat food that the only experience it gives you is the desire to have another bite. But eat food that tells a story about itself, that, you know, who grew it, where it's from. One of the kind of neat insights I had when I was writing the book is I, I went to Northern Italy and I went to visit a bean festival. We think of Italians, you know, they love pasta and lasagna, you know, and they do, but they also love beans. And I think beans are a food that are undervalued here because I think when they're prepared properly, they're incredibly delicious. They're also very nutritious. So I, there was a guy, this kind of tall guy with a handlebar mustache selling his beans. And I asked him, you know, what's the best recipe? And he was an absolute purist. He said he would just boil them uh, with some salt and he wouldn't even use olive oil. He used a neutral vegetable oil because he didn't want to cover up the flavor. And then someone else says, you know, when you boil it, you should add an onion. Someone says garlic. And then another woman says rosemary. And then, you know, this argument ensues. And then, okay, so the recipe is one thing. Well, it turns out they produce four different varieties of this bean in this village. So then an argument breaks out about which is the best bean. And I thought, no matter where I go, everybody argues about food. But here's the difference. 
Here we get into these quasi-scientific discussions about carbs and fat and calories, often things we don't fully understand and certainly things that we can't control the way we think we can. Mm. In Italy, they argue about who's got the best recipe. What is the best way to enjoy this food? They don't live in fear of food. They celebrate the products of the land and the sea. And they're not trying to change the properties of food with artificial sweeteners and fake fats and so forth. They revere the, the recipes that have been handed down. Well, their method certainly sounds more primitive, but it's certainly working. Their relationship with food is much, much better. So I think what we should do is eat real food. And that's, that's you know, food that comes from farms and comes out of the ocean, but also food that tastes robustly of what it is. Tomatoes that really taste exactly. like tomatoes and yeah. beef that tastes like beef. And so, that, you know, you have to take more care in how you source your food and how you prepare it. But I think it is so much more rewarding to eat that way, not just during the meal, but how you feel afterwards as well. Will you grant that, and I don't know if this is outside of your scope or not, but will you grant that for those of us who have grown up in the processed food industry and have not focused on real food, that we may have actually damaged our capacity to just be able to eat real food without restriction, without care, without caution, because we've gone so much overboard, like through binge eating disorder or food addiction, like that there could actually be some damage, some downregulation of the dopamine receptors. You mentioned endorphins. I'd like you to talk more about that as well. You know, I think. I think that's probably true. I, I wouldn't claim to have an expertise in that, but I think, you know, when things really get beat up, I think it's unreasonable just to expect them to return to normal or, or certainly to expect that to happen quickly. Mm -hmm. However, you know, I didn't talk about this in the book because I really tried to limit the book to, to peer-reviewed science, but I came across so many anecdotes of people who moved to Europe and ate, ate you know, raved about the food and lost weight. There was a guy I spoke to who, um, he worked for a company that makes um, the cases they use for you know, how you would encase a, an engine for an airplane. So he, he moved to the south of France with his whole team for about six months. And this was a guy who loved to bike. He'd bike like, you know, 120 miles a week kind of thing. And he didn't do nearly as much biking in France. And also he said the food was just incredible. Um, his team racked up the biggest bill at the cafeteria and he would go to eat. He said the Indian food was great. The French food was great. Everything was wonderful. And he's like, he just dreaded getting on the scale because like, there's no question I gained weight. Turns out he lost 10 pounds. And I had many other anecdotes like that, which I think just suggests that I think if we put ourselves in an environment where food, you know, isn't engineered to tell us lies, good things can happen. Does that mean it's easy and one can just snap one's fingers and it's all going to fix itself? I don't think so. I think one of the important things too we can do is give our, our you know, young people better food so they don't wind up with some of these problems. But I think you're right that it's probably, if we've forgotten how to eat properly, it's probably something we need to relearn how to do. And that's something that's going to take effort and time. Okay. So you haven't said it much about the endorphin piece, and that's something that we don't hear a lot about within the whole food craving business. So can you elaborate a bit on that? Yeah. So I'll talk about some research that a guy named Kent Barrage did. And this is how this really deepened our understanding of how pleasure works with food. And, and this was, this was when we thought dopamine equaled pleasure. Yeah. Kent Barrage is a psychologist and he was very much on the dopamine as pleasure train to the point that he wanted to add to that body of knowledge by proving that. So what he did is he took some rats and he used drugs to reduce the amount of dopamine in their brains. And then he gave them this sort of shot of sugar water in the mouth. And rats really do like sugar water. I would argue more than humans do. And he was ex expecting, you know, with the dopamine reduced, they're, they're just not going to enjoy this. And they did. They did these funny, cute little things that rats do. They stick up their tongue and they lick their paw and they, they make these cute little gestures to say like, that was really good. 
So he's like, doesn't make sense. Dopamine's supposed to be pleasure. Why did they enjoy the sugar water? So now he he like lesions their brain. He wipes out the dopamine network. And these rats are like catatonic. I, I mean, they, they can't even be stirred to do anything. And, it, and they, they just live in this kind of gray, pleasureless void. He fires the sugar water in their mouth and they do it again. And he's like, my God, like what's going on? This doesn't make any sense. So now he switches tactics. He puts electrodes in their brains and cranks up the dopamine. Well, now they just turn into eating machines. They are just stuffing their faces. But funnily enough, they're making these, these facial expressions that they actually can't stand what they're eating. They're, they're making like this, it's called a gape. It's like, this is awful. Yeah. Uh, it's like they're experiencing pain and they're stuffing their face. Things really aren't adding up. More evidence starts to trickle in. Dopamine is also involved in movement. So some of the drugs that are given yes. to people with Parkinson's elevates dopamine. Right on, well, it turns yeah. out people given these, these drugs that elevate dopamine were doing these odd things. Like one guy would just like take apart his fridge for no reason, or they start chopping wood like a maniac. They would like to play um, scratch cards or they would gamble or they would yeah. pester their wives for sex, or they would uh, visit prostitutes or use pornography. But they said they never enjoyed doing any of these things. They felt driven to do them. Mm -hmm. And finally, Kent Barrage solved the puzzle. And what he found that what we talk about as pleasure isn't one thing. It's in fact, two things. There's the dopamine aspect, and this is motivation, this is wanting, this is the desire that this is what brings us towards the needed thing. Then there is what he calls liking, and that's different than dopamine. That is the pleasure impact, and that's not mediated by dopamine. That's mediated by the opioid neurotransmitters. That is a different experience. So if you think of a meal, when you get that wonderful waft of pizza aroma and you see the slice of pizza, your experience, that's a dopamine thing. You want to eat that pizza. When you put that first bite of pizza in your mouth, you go, oh my goodness, that's delicious. That's liking. And they're two different things. And what I found when I visited Anya Hilbert's lab, like I mentioned, there's a lot of foods that really just, you know, get this dopamine thing galloping, but don't really deliver what I think of as genuine pleasure. Okay, great. Um, be before we, uh, Christian, I know I want, I want to give this back to you, but I, I do want to mention your other book, Steak, which I really enjoyed. It was, uh, for those of you, especially the keto folks who like to eat meat, this is a must read, folks. Mark, you've got a great ability to tell a story. I mean, you're doing it here. And in the book, it's like I'm traveling with you all these different countries, all these different ranches, all these different questions about steak and how to grow it. And I guess, I guess you believe that that's a very good nutritional match, the steak with the yeah. Endorphins. Yeah, so that's where things really start to get interesting for me is because the steak book really started out as more like a travel food book, really not scientific yeah. at all. And I just wanted to, you know, I, I had this great experience eating steak. I visited my brother. He lived in Chile in the, in the late 90s, mid to late 90s. And I had this unbelievable steak with him. And I just asked this question, like, why was that steak so good? And it turns out all the answers I got, it's about marbling, fat, fattest flavor, all wrong. What it turned out is what really matters is what the critter eats. And cattle were designed to eat grass. And grass-fed beef can be really bad, but boy, when the, when the farmer knows what he or she is doing, it is just transcendental. It's unbelievable, and you will spend the rest of your life just trying to get that steak. But what was interesting was that I was really just after the pleasure of steak, but it turned out that this was also better for me. It's a diet that's better for the cow, also better for the planet. And this started to tell me that, you know, I walked into that book like so many of us thinking pleasure's bad. You know, the best steak's probably gonna be like a heart attack on a plate and the cow's gonna have to be tortured. And, you know, the temperature of the world's gonna go up five degrees. And like, no, in fact, it was kind of a win-win-win across the board. Better for me, better for the cow, better for the planet, and just wonderfully delicious. And that's what really made me look at this problematic relationship we have with food and come at it at a different way. 
Wow, that's fabulous. Do we have time for one sort of off question before we close up? Yes. Um, in the end of craving, you mentioned, and I just wanted to know if, if this was a central piece or just an off piece. You mentioned about the cause of obesity as being the, the vitamin three niacin. Is that something that you were like? Is that something worth talking about? Because yeah, absolutely. I'm talking about that. Yeah, this is another piece of the puzzle, and this gets back. And so you're probably wondering, well, what's the connection? What this gets back to is I would call our suspicion of food and our belief that there's something wrong with food and it needs to be improved. And this is where Italy comes back into the picture. Because if you, if you rewind the clock about 100 years ago, both the north of Italy and the southern U.S. were being plagued by an epidemic called pellagra. Nobody knew what the cause was. It was a terrible, terrible disease. It would start with these skin scales that would progress. And then people would become demented. They would get horrible diarrhea and then they would die. There was all sorts of bizarre theories, very much like obesity. There was all these experts that pounded their fists on the table and they were sure they knew what the cause was. Some people thought it was rotten food. Some people thought it had to do with, if you live too close to water, spores that get into your blood that burst into flame. It's sand flies, it's mosquitoes. I mean, it just went across the board. Well, finally, an epidemiologist named Goldberger realized that he went to a sanatorium in Georgia and everyone thought he was nuts. He said, don't mop the floor, don't wash the sheets. I just want you to start feeding them different food. And he fed the inmates things like beans or milk or cheese, and he reversed it. And this was a very important our understanding of micronutrition because he showed that food isn't just food, that there's essential elements in food that are necessary for survival. We call them vitamins. And what was lacking in the diet of people with pellagra was vitamin B3, niacin. Well, what gets really interesting is when you look at how these two cultures, you know, what their approach to fixing it was. The United States in the early 1940s passed the enrichment laws where they encouraged, but basically made law. You got to start adding niacin and also riboflavin and thiamine to bread. And then it made its way into flour, rice, corn flour, pasta, donuts. And now you look at a box of cereal and it's just loaded with vitamins. The idea was we don't know food is by its nature imperfect, that you can eat food, but get pellagra. And we don't know what's good for us. So we need to fix what's wrong with food because there's something wrong with food and there's something wrong with us. Now, look at what they did in Italy. They could have added niacin to their polenta, to their bread. And they said, no, they didn't think food was the cause of pellagra. They thought food was the solution. They said, these parlors are poor. They need access to better food. So they said things like, you should raise rabbits because it's cheap to raise rabbits. It's a cheap form of meat. They said, this will sound hilarious. They said, they should drink wine. And I mean, that seems completely, like, totally nutty. Someone with a nutritional deficiency should drink wine. But back then, the wines were not very well filtered. They had a lot of yeast, and yeast is absolutely loaded with, with nice, and it was actually good advice. Well, both solutions worked. Enrichment basically wiped out pellagra almost overnight. Italy, it took longer, but Italy ate its way out of a, a nutritional deficiency. Fast forward the clock, and things could not be more different because the southern U.S. graduated from one nutritional disaster to another. The pellagra belt is now the diabetes belt or the mm -hmm. obesity belt. It has the highest rates of obesity and diabetes in North America. Northern Italy is this Alice in Wonderland upside-down world where everything you were ever taught about food and fattening this and that makes no sense because they eat an incredibly rich diet. Cream, cheese, gelato, cured pork, pasta... In Bologna, that's where we get the word bologna from. They call it mortadella. That is their favorite sort of luncheon meat. They've had a rules about how to make it for 300 years. They have an official repository of recipes in Bologna. If you want to make lasagna or tortellini, any of these wonderful things, they say you need to make it this way. They eat such delicious food in Italy that people from all over the world fly there 
to eat. You would think if deliciousness is the cause of our problems, they would be the plumpest in the Western world. They are the thinnest. The rate of obesity in Northern Italy is less than 8%. It's astonishing. They're eating such wonderful food. Well, I asked the question. So, so I think this tells us two things. One of them is that this idea that there's something wrong with us and there's something wrong with food, I think is wrong. We thought food is the problem. We need to change food. I think the Italians were right that food is in fact the solution, eating and enjoying real food. But then I also thought, was this whole, this, this whole business about adding vitamins to processed carbs, was that a good idea? There's no question it worked, but it was kind of a blunt approach because it was, a, in fact, a tiny percentage of the population that was suffering from pellagra, and now suddenly everybody gets niacin in their flour, everybody gets thiamine, everybody gets riboflavin. So I started to look at the animal science. That's something I got very interested in when I did the steak book. And what I looked at specifically was pig farming, because pigs, of the animals we raise, pigs are the most like us. They're, they're omnivorous, monogastric mammals. They eat lots of stuff, you know, animals and plants. They have one stomach, not like cows that have a bunch. So they're a lot like us. Well, pig farming radically changed in the 1950s, and the reason was because of vitamins. So what a farmer wants to do is get their pigs fat quickly because they get paid by the pounds. So the bigger they can get them big and fat, the better. So back then they knew that there was this kind of rocket fuel feed you could feed your pigs, corn and soy. But they knew you can't give them too much of that because if that's all they eat, they're in fact going to get quite sick and they get something like a pig version of pellagra because it's not nutritionally balanced. So back then, all pork was what we now call pastured pork. The pigs were sent out to pasture where they would eat things like alfalfa. They would eat their greens and this would balance the diet. So you could feed them corn and soy, but they had to go out and get their greens. Well, the discovery of vitamins changed all that because now you could just give them this rocket fuel feed of corn and soy, and you didn't need to send them out to pasture. You could keep them locked up in essentially a cage. You know, they called it dry lot. And now we, they're kind of like these intensive farms. And it changed pig farming forever. If you look at the growth curve, pigs got bigger, faster, fatter than ever before. So I asked the question in the book that, you know, maybe adding niacin and other B vitamins did cure pellagra in the short run, but maybe adding these vitamins to processed carbs is a bad idea. I'm not against all vitamins, but these vitamins, these B vitamins are the energy metabolizing vitamins. So calories on their own, this is important because we often think of calories are just like energy. And that's not true because calories are useless without the vitamins that help metabolize them. So you cannot have a hypercaloric diet without the vitamins that metabolize these calories. So it's not just enough to have the rocket fuel. You need the vitamins to make that rocket fuel burn. So what we did to pigs to make them big and fat quickly is what we did to our own food. And I think that's a policy we need to revisit and we need to challenge. Okay, great. Wow, thank you. So for those of you, Food Junkie, uh, add this, please, um, three books that are fabulous, or it might be four, is it three? Three, it's three. Three, three uh, all very well, easy to read, very, very pleasant, and uh, really provides a unique perspective on top of what we're already talking about. Chrissy, do you want to close Yeah, so we're just curious, what are you working on next? Well, I don't know exactly. I think maybe, and people often come to me, they want practical advice. So maybe something that might be more practical about not just how to cook, but to really understand on a fundamental basis exactly how food works. And, and I think one of the things that's interesting to me is that cuisine and culture, I think is, these aren't just recipes. I think this is kind of like the nutritional wisdom of the ancients. And it's looking at um, parts of the world to get it right and to understand exactly how they get it right. So, so the, the ideas are still forming, but I think there's, there's, more, there's more work to do. And where can our listeners find you? So I'm on Twitter and I'm on Facebook and Instagram at Mark Schatzker. I'm not super active on social media, but if anybody ever wants to reach out or ask me a question, 
always happy to hear it. All right. And we have a signature question and we tailored it to you in your book, your most recent book. So it is, if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about craving, what would it be? I think what I would tell myself is that is just to really be open-minded to the pleasures of eating. Because when I think about when I was a lot younger, I would just get hungry and really eat quickly and eat all those foods that young young men eat. But as I, that there's so much, there's a lot of foods that I was suspicious of, things like vegetables, which I've grown to love. So I would just say there's more to eating than there's craving. Ah, oh, great way love to Love that. Love that. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here, Mark. Yeah, yeah. thanks for having me. It's a great discussion. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.